we as humanity have gone through disruptive general purpose technology changes before, but we've never gone through one that's going to move so quickly. Welcome to the Marketing AI Show, the podcast that helps your business grow smarter by making artificial intelligence approachable and actionable. You'll hear from top authors, entrepreneurs, researchers, and executives as they share case studies, strategies, and technologies that have the power to transform your business and your career. My name is Paul Reitzer. I'm the founder of Marketing AI Institute, and I'm your host. Welcome to episode 80. Wow, 80. That sounds like a big number. Uh, episode 80 of the Marketing AI Show. I am your host, Paul Reitzer, along with my co-host, Mike Foot. Hey, Mike, we swapped. You were out of town last week. Where, where were you last week? Uh, I was in California. Okay. Right, right I'm outside in, LA. All right. I am in Florida, Orlando, I think. <laughs> um, uh, so yeah, we are, uh, we're trading trips and then I think we'll be back together actually on, on Wednesday this week. Right. So it is Monday, January 22nd. We are doing this in the afternoon due to my flights. So it's about three 20 PM Eastern time on Monday afternoon. Um, we have a lot to get into today as usual. Um, some pretty cool topics, some bigger topics about some trends that are happening, but first let's touch on our episode sponsors. Brand Ops is back again as a sponsor of this episode. Many marketers use ChatGPT to create marketing content, but that's just the beginning. When we sat down with the Brand Ops team, we were impressed by their complete views of brand marketing performance across channels. Now you can bring Brand Ops data into ChatGPT to answer your toughest marketing questions. Use Brand Ops data to drive unique AI content based on what works in your industry. Visit brandops.io slash marketing AI show to learn more and see brand ops in action. And this episode is also brought to us by the Marketing AI Institute AI for Writers Summit, which is happening virtually on Wednesday, March 6th from noon to 4 p.m. Eastern time. The lineup is almost complete. I have one more speaker to add to the final panel. Um, which is going to be awesome. It's about AI writing in the enterprise, everything that goes along with adoption and integration of AI writing tools and platforms. Um, but that event last year in its inaugural year, we had over 4,000 writers, editors, and marketers join us uh, for that event. So it is a free event. There's a paid option where you can get on demand uh, as an upgrade, and there's a private registration where contact information isn't passed along to the event sponsor, um, but it's free otherwise. So there's no reason not to join us if you are involved in content creation in any way, whether it's you're, you're at a publisher, a media company, uh, brand side, freelance, whatever it is. So join us again for that event, March 6th. You can go to AI writers or AI writer That's AI writer to learn more about that event. It is coming up fast. That's like <laughs> six weeks away or something. So, um, definitely check that out. All right, Mike, let's get rolling. All right, Paul. First up, every Microsoft customer, even if you don't work at a big enterprise, now has powerful AI right at their fingertips. And that's because of a few announcements from Microsoft this past week. First up is that the company recently announced Copilot Pro. 
which is a new subscription that gives individuals and creators access to Microsoft's AI assistant in Word, Excel, PowerPoint, and Outlook. So for 20 bucks a month, you can turn on Copilot Pro within your existing Microsoft 365 personal or family subscription. So this is for individuals and it instantly gives you the ability to use AI to do things like generate PowerPoint decks using text prompts, write and rewrite content automatically in Word, write and reply to emails automatically in Outlook, and start analyzing data and generating graphs in Excel. So now there are three tiers or versions of Copilot now that we have this announcement of Copilot Pro. One is a free version of Copilot that functions like a ChatGPT-like AI assistant. The second is Copilot Pro, which we just talked about, which is specifically for individuals. And then the third is kind of what we referenced in the past when it comes to Copilot, which is called Copilot for Microsoft 365. This is the existing business license for companies and teams. And this last point is important because in addition to announcing Copilot Pro, Microsoft made a big change to business licenses. Previously, you had to purchase a minimum of 300 seats to get Copilot access for your company. However, that minimum is now gone. That means you can purchase any number of seats now under 300, opening this up to any business that's interested. So, Paul, I want to kick things off and ask if you can kind of give us an overview of what your thoughts are on Copilot Pro specifically and kind of how you see this fitting into the overall picture of Microsoft's Copilot offerings. Yeah, I mean, it seems like the biggest uh, news here is really that they democratized it for everybody else that isn't a big enterprise. So, you know, now if you're an individual, you know, personal Microsoft 365 user, you have it for your family, um, or you're a small business, you can go get it. Uh, it certainly seems like the timing of this uh, was very closely tied to ChatGPT team coming out, um, which also opened it up to businesses under 150 seats. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's the kind of technology we've been talking about for months. I mean, they announced that this was coming, I think it was March of 2023. They sort of uh, previewed what was coming. And then in November, the technology, the co-pilot technology rolled out into 365 for companies with 300 or more seats. And now everyone else is starting to get the technology. So I think the biggest news is really just the availability now for everyone to have this capability for $20 per month. So for some of the businesses that are kind of just getting up to speed here now that they have access to Copilot, which of the features in Copilot for businesses specifically kind of jump out to you as particularly interesting to maybe explore further to enhance productivity? For me, I've always been waiting to see how the integration with Excel and PowerPoint work. And then the same on the Google side, how it works with sheets and slides, mm. because I think we all, you know, we can experience ChatGPT and get a general sense of how it's going to work in Microsoft Word or Google Docs. We, we, we understand how it creates and edits and simplifies and summarizes and all the things it does there. But I think for a lot of people, especially people who haven't played around with Code Interpreter or now known as Advanced Data Analysis in ChatGPT, 
you don't really realize what its capabilities are going to be within spreadsheets. And a lot of marketers, a lot of business people spend a lot of time in Excel and in Google Sheets. And the reality is that many of us probably just sort of like hack our way through and don't ever really take the time to become extremely adept power users. Um, even though there's probably tons of efficiencies to be gained. Like I always joke about like, if I never have to build a pivot table again, I will be happy. Like if I can just <laughs> ask a question of Excel or sheets and it does all the building for me, that would be amazing. Um, from what I've seen online so far, responses are sort of like lukewarm about, you know, how people perceive the value of the current version of Copilot to be within Excel and within PowerPoint. Hmm. But, you know, I think the key is like it, it doesn't have to go from zero to a hundred in terms of its capabilities or, you know, in terms of how well it automates a process for you. Uh, I think for a lot of business and even personal users, it's just going to be those incremental gains where you ask it to create a PowerPoint for you based on a document. And it does like 60% of the work. Maybe the design's not beautiful. Maybe you need to like go in and edit all the, the notes, but Maybe you you save yourself the front end two hours of just getting the information in there. And as we've talked about before, just that, that where it gives you a really reasonable first draft or it does an initial analysis of a data set that saves you two, three, four, five hours or does the work you would have had to have gotten someone else in your company to help you with, that's, that can be transformational without being insanely high quality AI. Hmm. So if I'm a company that's now interested in kind of exploring Copilot, but I haven't done so yet, haven't really looked too much into it, like what should I be thinking about next? Um, how should I be approaching this? I think the, the, you know, again, you and I, when we were even prepping for this, it's like, what, what is, <laughs> what are, everything just called Copilot now at Microsoft. And we're, we're, I mean, we use Microsoft, we, we, we use docs and Excel at times, but we're largely a Google shop. Um, so I'm not as aware of like all the different nomenclatures for everything. It's like, is Google Suite or, or is Microsoft Suite, Microsoft 365? Is that also Office? And I know they changed the naming conventions years ago. Um, but anyway, so my feeling is, I think the thing that we all have to decide is, okay, I'm already paying for ChatGPT team. Like, you know, as the Institute, I've talked about this before, I, I got that for us as soon as it came out. So that's $30 a month. We experimented with, Duet AI from Google for mm. 25 or $30 a month, which I put on hold until the updated version comes out and it improves. But we do also use Microsoft. So do we need Microsoft 365 Copilot if we already have ChatGPT team? And then if you're a bigger company, maybe you have Jasper or Writer. And it's like, it, it starts to get really complex and there's going to be a lot of overlap of capabilities. And so I think for most business users, the question is going to become, if we go all in on Copilot, do we do we need these other tools anymore? Or is this actually going to consolidate our tech stack a little bit? Mm. And it's probably too early to tell, honestly. Like I think 2024 is going to be a big year of probably experimenting with a collection of tools and not settling on anything and thinking you're set because it's just going to keep evolving. And I think a lot of companies and a lot of leaders I've talked to aren't ready to commit to a platform for the next 12 months. They really just want to keep experimenting with the different solutions. 
So in another big piece of news, Meta just surprised a lot of people in the AI world by making some significant announcements. In a recent Instagram reel, CEO Mark Zuckerberg said that the company is committed to building open source artificial general intelligence or AGI. That means building AI systems that are as smart as people at a lot of different tasks and then making those systems available to anyone online to use in Remix as they see fit. Zuckerberg said that, quote, it's become clear that the next generation of services required is building full general intelligence, building the best AI assistants, AIs for creators, AIs for businesses, and more that needs advances in every area of AI, from reasoning to planning to coding to memory and other cognitive AI, uh, cognitive abilities. Now, to do that, the company is taking some specific steps, and they include bringing together its AI research teams, which are called FAIR and Gen AI, bringing them closer together to align on this goal of building AGI. Zuck said they're training Llama 3, which is the next version of its open source AI model, one of the more powerful models out there. And they're also, and this kind of turned heads, building a breathtaking amount of computing infrastructure by the end of the year. Uh, Zuckerberg quoted acquiring a whopping 350,000 H100s, which are powerful processors that are built for AI applications. Last but not least, Zuck also gave a shout out to Meta's AI-powered glasses that are created in partnership with Ray-Ban. He mentioned that, quote, I think a lot of us are going to talk to AI as frequently throughout the day. And I think a lot of us are going to do that using glasses. These glasses are the ideal form factor for letting an AI see what you see and hear what you hear. So, Paul, first up, can you put this into some context for us. Like, why is it such a big deal that Meta is making an announcement like this now uh, compared to, and why is what they're doing important compared to the approach being taken by people like OpenAI, Google, Microsoft, et cetera? Yeah, honestly, like it was a lot to unpack for a one minute, 42 <laughs> yeah, second video right. from Zuckerberg. Yeah, yeah that basically post. read you the whole statement. It was not long. No, this wasn't like some big paper that came out. It was a video that he posted on his Facebook page and I'm sure on threads and wherever else. Um, I had to reinstall threads on my phone just to like <laughs> go see it. Um, but anyway, but the accompanying post was, I mean, maybe like 120 words. So mm -hmm. he basically packed all of those announcements into a one minute and 40 second bit that he just recorded. Like it looks like in a hotel room. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but again, there was a lot to unpack there and you hit all the highlights, but just to expand on a little bit. So the research lab one definitely jumped out to me right away. We talk about Jan LeCun a lot on this show. He's one of the foremost experts in AI, one of kind of the godfathers of modern AI and really been playing a critical role in it since the 1980s and 1990s back at Bell Labs. Um, so the fact that his area FAIR, which used to stand for Facebook AI Research, and now I, I don't know what the F stands for anymore within it, but um, when they renamed it Meta, they chose not to rename the AI Research Lab. But the fact that they moved the research lab under the product team was the first thing that jumped out to me because it sounded real similar to like what happened at Google when the brain team and the DeepMind team combined. Mm. In essence, what's been going on for the last decade at these big companies was they were spending billions on AI research that didn't have immediate implications to the products. It wasn't like they had some, 
you know, KPI that said like, this is what you have to deliver in terms of product impact. They were just doing the research for the next frontier. We've now arrived at that frontier and now there's an urgency to productize what these teams have been building. So the fact that they kind of brought this under, and so in Meta's case, they put it under um, Chris Cox, the chief product officer. He did an, uh, there was an internal memo. I think this, this was the Verge that had the internal memo. Um, he said, with this change, we elevate the importance of AI. This is from Chris Cox, the, the chief, chief product officer. With this change, we elevate the importance of AI research as an essential ingredient to the long-term success of the company and our products. Uh, alongside the major infrastructure investments, Mark mentions, which we'll talk about again in a minute, moving FAIR and Gen AI closer together will mean a more coherent AI research portfolio and roadmap. Uh, this is the part I boldfaced with Llama becoming the primary launch vehicle for progress toward AGI. So the research lab thing was huge. The AGI thing was fascinating because mm. I don't remember Zuckerberg stating that as a goal for meta previous no. do, do you recall that not I, no i was actually i had to double check a couple times preparing for this i was like did he he for sure said general intelligence right and so oh yeah. yeah i have not heard it in the past and that's why i was double checking it's not common language for them to use so now interesting related to that um it ends up that uh lacoon was at the world economic forum last week and he was doing an interview about this and he started talking about human level intelligence. And so I'll just read a couple of interests. Cause again, this is like, this isn't specifically tied to what Zuckerberg said, but it's interesting that Lacoon, who is like the AI researcher, the head AI guy at Facebook, um, he said, human level AI is not just around the corner. This is going to take a long time and it's going to require new scientific breakthroughs that we just don't know yet. The systems are intelligent in the relatively narrow domain where they've been trained. They are fluent in language, and that fools, fools us into thinking that they are intelligent, but they are not intelligent. It's not as if we're going to scale them up and train them with more data, with bigger computers, and reach human intelligence. This is not going to happen. What's going to happen is that we're going to have to discover new technology, new architectures of those systems. So now, if you follow Jan, this is not a surprising comment at all. He is very much of the belief that we don't get to AGI through language models. He believes that these things need worldviews. They need to understand the world around them and learn like a child does, where it's observing mm -hmm. things and making connections. And so that's long been his belief. But just the fact that the week that uh, Zuckerberg states they're going after AGI, Lacoon's like, yeah, we're nowhere close to this. <laughs> because you, you wouldn't think they work for the same company in that moment when you were looking at those two things. The GPU thing, I get that for, for a lot of people who listen, the GPU thing is probably kind of an abstract thing. Like what the hell are mm. GPUs and what does that mean? Like 600,000 equivalent. The, I was trying to find some context to give people um, where it's kind of obvious. So here's the only one I could find that's like, we know for sure, because a lot of labs don't disclose this. Like OpenAI has never actually disclosed how many GPUs they trained GPT-4 on. Mm. It's believed it was about 20 to 25,000 A100s, which is another type of NVIDIA chip. So 20 to 25,000 versus 300 to 600,000. You can do that math. But the other one we know for sure, we talked about this uh, I don't know, 10, 20 episodes ago, is um, 
uh, Inflection, which is training Pi, PI.AI. And they said when they raised a bunch of money in June that they were their goal was 22,000 chips, uh, H100 chips by the end of 2023. So 22,000 was their goal. And they, they said uh, Inflection is building the largest AI cluster in the world comprising 22,000 NVIDIA H100 GPUs. Well, I'm guessing it isn't, gonna, it isn't the largest anymore if that was the goal. So that just gives you a sense. And then the only other one I saw was actually ARK Invest, the director of research there, tweeted um, 600,000 H100 equivalents at Meta is roughly eight times Tesla's roadmap by the end of 2024. So it is a lot of computing power is basically what we're saying. Um I, I, I tweeted like, wow, talk about the, like the ultimate Silicon Valley flex is like yeah, no 600,000 GPUs <laughs> just drop the mic and leave. Um, I heard one estimate. It was about 20 billion worth of chips. I don't, I don't know exactly how much they go for. So, and then the fact that they're training Llama 3, is like, oh, by the way, <laughs> we're probably training a model more powerful than GPT-4. And that was like the side note within this. So yeah, it was wild, man. That was, uh, I don't know. And again, you got to love, like you and I came up working in an agency. I came out, you know, up in the PR industry where like you worked for months to try and get like a headline for your client, <laughs> like a big news headline. You plan product launches forever, major announcements. And now it's just like Zuckerberg just drops a minute and a half video of him, you know, rolling out of bed in the morning saying they're doing all this stuff and it's everywhere. Like you didn't even need a PR agency. <laughs> yeah. So. I want to kind of unpack a little bit what kind of, you know, we talk about OpenAI, Google, Microsoft quite a bit. Like what kind of unique advantages does Meta have in the AI space? I mean, they're doing all these very interesting things, but how are they differentiating and competing against some of these other giants? I mean, what strikes me is we've seen some recent articles kind of come out about the sheer amount of data that they're collecting on each of their users. Uh, it seems like maybe this is something that Meta has that others might not. One article from The Verge reported that a stunning 48,000 companies sent Meta data on a single person. And it also found that on average, Meta received data from more than 2,200 companies on each individual that they analyzed in this study. So like, is that the secret sauce that Meta has that others don't? Yeah, I think you could do a trilogy. They have compute, obviously, that probably, you know, I would imagine Google might be the only one that uh, is surpassing them at the moment. I don't, I don't know that to be fact, but it, I would assume um, they have immense amounts of data, not only the stuff that they're getting through all these third parties, but the stuff that they get from Instagram and WhatsApp and Facebook and wherever mm. else that they're taking their data from. And then the other one that uh, Jan LeCun tweeted last week was actually, it was an Ethan Mollick tweet that Jan retweeted. Um, they spend more on R&D when you look at percentage of revenue than any company in the world. So they're at 30%. And this has been going on for the last you know, 10 plus years. So they've been investing in AI research for a very long time. Um, the chart, which we'll put a link to 30% of Meta's, uh, revenue goes to R and D the next closest is NVIDIA at 27%. And then, uh, ASML at 15%, Amazon alphabet at 14%, just to give you context, Apple, which spends 
billions is at 7%. So Meta doesn't spend the most in terms of dollars, a percentage of revenue. They are mm-hmm. the, the largest spender. So they have been committed. Um, now they blew 10 billion of that on the metaverse, but that's like a totally separate topic. <laughs> so it'll eventually pay off. I'm not, I'm not <laughs> saying it was a total waste of money. So to wrap this up, there's kind of one big element of this that we haven't talked about yet. Um, you know, on one hand, this can be kind of really exciting. Like we're putting powerful AI in the hands of everyone. They can go create and innovate. But on the other, this whole open source thing seems like it could be a potential nightmare for responsible AI usage. Like what happens once powerful AI, even we're talking now general artificial intelligence, or artificial general intelligence, rather, is open source to anyone. Like, is this safe? Is this the responsible way to do this? It feels a bit like playing with fire from one perspective. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I wish I had the answer. There are a lot of extremely smart people, many of whom you and I both respect and follow closely, who think open source is the only way forward, Mm. that we can't trust, you know, three, four organizations of the world to control AGI and all the power. And so they see open source as the only way to democratize this. And then you accept that there's going to be bad actors and ramifications that come along with it. The alternative is, you know, more in the Google open AI camp where they want it controlled. They want the regulation um, because they believe it's dangerous. And the open source people would say, you're only doing that to try and prevent uh, competition. Um, the regulatory capture concept we've talked about a number of times. Um, I don't, I don't know where I fall, honestly, on what I really believe all i know is it's irrelevant because we're done there's no turning back the open models are out there they're not only in the us in other countries um and it's just where it's it's going and um i think we just have to do our best to prepare for the fact that this is uh the world we're going to live in there will be very very powerful open source models meta is intent on that happening and even if they put regulation in place today Mm. Or it's already too late to turn back. I think we have to figure out how to live in this world of of both models existing. All right. Our third big topic today is about some new stats on AI's impact on jobs. And a couple of these kind of made me sit up and start paying some attention. Um, 40% of jobs across the globe could be affected by the rise of AI, according to some new research from the International Monetary Fund, the IMF. And 60% of the jobs that are going to be impacted, they say will be in, quote, high-income nations of the developed world. These researchers at the IMF kind of adapted a commonly used conceptual framework from a bunch of past studies to measure which types of human work will be exposed to AI. And when they looked across all these different types of jobs, high-income nations ended up being most exposed to AI transformation. Now, why is this the case? Well, they theorized that emerging markets and low-income countries don't have as much of the infrastructure of skilled workers to harness the immediate benefits of the AI that we have today. Now, overall, there's a ton to unpack in this. We'll link to all of the relevant research. There's a lot to go through. I'd encourage you to explore it if you're interested in it in it but the overall picture here is that the research is saying ai is going to create some really big winners and some really big losers and there's not a ton of space it sounds like in between 
Some workers in high-income countries are going to capture huge productivity gains and benefit financially from the technology. Others are going to see AI lower demand for their labor and possibly even eliminate their jobs. And the lower-income countries generally sounds like they will be unable to fully leverage AI and may lose out to higher-income countries that can use it to create macroeconomic benefits. So... First, I kind of want to take a step back here, Paul, before we dive into the specifics of this study and kind of frame the AI employment discussion for anyone who is either new to it or hasn't been following it that closely. Like, why exactly are we so worried as a society about AI taking jobs in the first place? Like, it seems like we're way more worried about AI and its impact on human employment than we have been at any other time when we talk about like traditional automation, say in factories or manufacturing, things like that. Yeah, I think to kind of summarize the challenge here is we as humanity have gone through disruptive general purpose technology changes before, but we've never gone through one that's going to move so quickly. Mm -hmm. Uh, Usually you have years or decades to adapt this one probably isn't going to give us that much time. In some industries, it can be months or you know one to two years where you have to kind of evolve. And so I think a lot of people um, just assume we'll figure it out. You know, a large percentage of the U.S. population and really around the world were farmers at one point, and now they're not. Now it's a very small percentage of population. It's people say, well, we we evolved. We found other jobs to do. Um, Horses were a pretty big thing for a while in in um, in city streets, and and now you don't see them as often on city streets. And so you know you have this whole evolution that happens. But the thing we look at is you can look at the replacement of roles, and I think this is what where the flaw happens a lot of times is people think about you will or will not need lawyers, you will or will yeah. not need marketing consultants, you will or will not need customer service representatives. Um, It's not so much that the AI is going to replace at a one-to-one level, that it's going to take a job or a role and just eliminate it and do 100% of that job. What we talk about all the time is efficiency gains within that role to where you may just not need as many of those people. So, you know, top of mind for me right now is tax returns. So if you think about humans doing tax returns, it's a very manual process. Well, if... The AI technology gets really, really good at assisting CPAs in doing these things. And to the point where maybe they can do five to 10 times the number of returns um, that they used to do, but in the same amount of time, the question becomes, do you need as many? Um, The same can be applied to any form of knowledge work. It's just a question of if the AI does 10, 20, 50% of that job, of what that person does 150 hours a month or 180 hours a month. If it's doing that percentage of it, do we need as many people doing the work anymore? And so that's that's kind of I think you and I are very similar plane here, at least you know based on the conversations we've had. It's it's not that we think AI is going to come in and just fully automate job, people out of jobs, mm. but it seems very apparent it's going to drive massive efficiency gains in a lot of knowledge work roles, and it's going to happen probably pretty quickly. And so will industries and companies have the time to adapt to where they can find other responsibilities for those people, or are they just going to need fewer people to run these companies? 
And so I think that's that's why studies like this are important because we don't have the answers. Like the best economists in the world have research out about this and they have theories, but no one actually knows what's going to happen. And so we do surface this conversation a lot when we see reports that we think are worth paying attention to, not because we're pointing at saying, see, we told you like this. We're just saying it's another data point. It's another perspective on a very important topic that doesn't get enough conversation. Um, I wish, at least like in the United States, that it was a much bigger part of the upcoming election. But mm. I, I haven't heard anything about no, this no. impact. It's not even a topic, which is crazy to me. Yeah, it really seemed like the only mainstream political conversation we had around this was when Andrew Yang, for instance, was like yeah. running when he had the whole universal basic income. But that has really fallen far into the background over the Yeah, it doesn't. Years. Would you look at the kind of the rhetoric of the current election cycle? I, I just I don't see this even getting surfaced as a topic, um, which is worrying to me because that's, you know, 10 months from now or the next, you know, whoever the president's going to be in the United States will take office about 12 months from now. Yeah. And, and that means we're now a year further out from don't, doing anything about a technology that is racing through uh, industries. Especially with everything we just talked about with open source and the previous yeah. topic too, regardless of how slow or fast AI adoption is at the enterprise level, people have this stuff running on their laptops right now. Yeah. And on your phones. I mean, <laughs> this technology on your right. phones. Yeah. So this study takes a really big picture kind of macroeconomic approach to the topic and totally understandable because it's the imf doing this but i'd love to talk for a minute about the micro the on the ground impact like if i'm your average business owner or business leader small medium large business like how is this changing my perspective on hiring and human resources yeah, the guidance we give organizations is that you need to start future-proofing your hires. So if you're looking out ahead and you have job descriptions of the people you're going to hire, you should have someone who has a reasonable understanding of AI technology and where it's going to go in the next 12 to 18 months and can look at that job description and say, if that's 180 hours now per month, it's probably 110 to 90 hours, mm. 12 months from now. Do you make that higher? And, and so what you could do is literally go through, I know you and I both teach this when we run workshops, take the job description and look for the things that can be intelligently automated. Look at the bullet points of what people do. Yeah. So you can do that with your current open roles and look at those jobs and say, okay, we were going to hire five people for this role based on an assessment of that role looking 12 months out. Maybe we only need two. Let's let's hire two instead of five so we don't have to reduce. So again, we're not saying don't make hires or that you're just going to run with a ton fewer people. Maybe it's just you don't grow as quickly. We're seeing this consolidation in the tech industry already. Like just three weeks into January, we've seen tens of thousands of layoffs in Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm. Now, they're not saying it's all because of AI, but they're looking at efficiency gains within companies saying we can run a much leaner organization now. So that's one thing you can do is don't make new hires without assessing how AI is going to impact those roles. The other thing you can do is take your existing teams and roles and do an assessment and say, okay, 12 to 18 months from now, how much is AI going to be doing this person's job and start planning now. And that doesn't mean start cutting jobs now. That means start finding ways to reallocate resources, to reskill and upskill people. So I think the best organizations are just going to take a very proactive approach to this 
And if it ends up that it doesn't gain 10, 20, 30% efficiencies for different roles, I mean, what's the worst case that you were prepared that it did? Like that's, mm -hmm. that's my feeling on this is because we don't know the smartest economists in the world don't actually know what happens. Isn't it wise to prepare for both outcomes? One is mm -hmm. nothing changes, which like business as usual. The alternative is we gain a ton of efficiency and maybe we don't need as many people doing the jobs that are currently there today. Um, and then the third thing, I guess, to look out ahead is what are the jobs that might be created over the next six to 12 months that we're not right. even thinking about? And I think that's an exciting thing. And that, again, like you may not have the people in your company that can envision that, but go find the people. There are consultants out there. There are people who can come in and kind of help you think this through, but really start to think in a more innovative way of what does a future marketing organization look like? We had uh, Dan Slag and the C CMO of Tomorrow.io spoke at our Macon conference last year, and that was what he did. He kind of like reimagined what a marketing org chart looks like and kind of started restructuring. I think you're going to see mm -hmm. a lot of really forward-thinking companies doing that. All right, let's dive into our rapid-fire topics this week. So first up, OpenAI CEO Sam Altman says that the company's next model, quote, will be able to do a lot, lot more than today's models. This comes from an interview Altman gave to Axios at Davos this past week. He said that the development of the company's future AI products will need to uh, allow, quote, quite a lot of individual customization and that this would make, quote, a lot of people uncomfortable. Now, that's because he foresees future AI tools giving different answers for different users based on their values. Altman also said the company's top priority is launching its new model, which many think is likely to be called GPT-5. And there was a juicy bit of gossip revealed during the interview when Altman said that he, quote, isn't sure on the exact status of Ilya Sutskever's employment at the moment. Sutskever is one of the OpenAI board members and employees who led last year's coup against Altman. So, Paul, what jumped out to you about this interview? I'd be curious about your thoughts both generally on Altman's perspective on where AI is going and also would love to hear about what's going on with him and Ilya Sutskever. Yeah. Um, so I'll first say this, the uncomfortable thing you led with, we've, we've known this is coming. I mean, they started talking about this within probably the first 30 days of GPT-4 coming out in March, 2023. There was a lot of pushback uh, early on that it was too liberal, that it was too far to the left um, from a U.S. political perspective. And so they had to go in and kind of make a lot of adjustments to get it closer to the center so people stop complaining. And then the people on the left complained. And, you know, it was just as politics does, everybody has to complain about something. And so they said then that the future versions would let you determine how you want your model to talk to you, basically. So they pretty much implied there was going to be like a political filter and that this is going to be done by country. It's going to be done by individual where it's kind of like you get to choose what media outlets you read. Um, you, you choose what kind of information bubble you live in. They're basically going to let your language model be a bubble too, if you want it to be. Mm. And so they see that as the only path forward, I, I guess. Um, inflection has taken a bit of different perspectives. So again, Mustafa Solomon Inflection Pie has basically said, we're going to build it with what we think are the right human values. If you don't like it, don't use it. Um, Anthropic Claude has basically built on some fundamental human values that are 
generally agreed upon. And that's kind of what you're going to get with their platform. So we're going to start to see this sort of fragmenting of how these models work based on what they've been trained to do and how they've been kind of red teamed or what guardrails have been put in place. So I do think it's going to cause a lot of problems. I mean, you're going to see a lot of negative mainstream media headlines when these things come out and they say uncomfortable things more commonly, but that's what you're going to get with the open source models. We talked about Llama 3, like you're not going to have those guardrails in Llama 3. So yeah, I mean, I think that was my first take is it wasn't terribly surprising. The fact that they're working on GPT-5, not surprising at all. I think people need to prepare themselves for a very, um, I don't know if disruptive is the right word. Like it's going to get weird. Like we're going to get Llama 3 at some point this year. It sounds like in the first half of the year, we're probably going to get GPT-5 in the first half of the year. We're most definitely, I assume, getting Gemini Ultra from Google in the first half of the year, maybe the first quarter. Um, Anthropic Claude's going to have a new like Whatever he says about the reasoning ability and its ability to understand and its ability to do all these personalization things, they're all going in that direction. So I don't think we're going to have like this moment where models just look completely different and like completely foreign to us, but I think you're going to have a massive step up in what they're capable of doing um, as we start to progress. And actually the, the one thing I put this on, I think this was on Twitter, but the one day last week I had this random thought, like I had listened to this podcast from Nathan LeBenz, I think is, is his name. Um, and he had been part of the red team for GPT-4. So he had access to it before they put the guardrails in place. It's raw ability. And it got me wondering, like when I was listening to these interviews with Sam, and Sam's a pretty persuasive guy, and he's talked about how these things are going to be like superhuman at persuasion. And it got me thinking, like, do you think that Sam and Greg and Ilya before he was, you know, kind of ousted or wherever Ilya is um, in limbo right now. Do you think they use a raw version of GPT-4, like an unedited, unrestricted version of GPT-4, and then carry that forward? Once they're done training GPT-5, do they keep like the raw power of the original model to themselves? I, don't, I have no idea what the answer is to that, but I, <laughs> I found myself starting to wonder, because when you listen to Nathan explain what GPT-4 was capable of, before they took all these restrictions and put mm -hmm. them in there. It's like, wow, like how much of an advantage would a company have if they still had the raw power of those models before they were kind of neutered? I, I don't know. Just I think this really does tie back to our previous podcast discussions about effective uh, accelerationism. This idea, yeah. the idea that some people, some leaders in Silicon Valley believe that technology, technological progression at all costs is the greatest good. Given that lens, I would be shocked if they weren't keeping this. At least a couple of the people in this mix have sympathy for those types of beliefs. I would be just flabbergasted if they had, I don't know how much they're using it maybe, but yeah, mm. destroying it or getting rid of it, I, that would shock me. Yeah. Guess we'll never know the, the conspiracy <laughs> there. Yeah, but anyway, I, I, was, I was just curious because it's like, how do you, if he knows like, he's super persuasion, it makes you think like he's seen it, like that he's has access to mm -hmm. persuasive capabilities beyond what we're seeing. Yeah, because he generally tweets things out when he knows them to be true. Um, 
So yeah, I'm not saying he actually is, that's how he's doing it, but he's got a pretty good pulse on it. So yeah, I, I, and the Iliad thing was fascinating when I mean, they just said point blank, like, what's his role? And he's like, I don't, I don't know. It's like, you're the CEO. You, you don't know if he's in yeah. the company still or not. That was weird. There's, I'm sure there is much more to that story that will come out. <laughs> so in some other news, OpenAI also recently announced that it's ramping up its efforts during the 2024 election season worldwide, quote, to prevent abuse, provide transparency on AI-generated content, and improve access to accurate voting information. Notably, the company said in a statement, quote, we're still working to understand how effective our tools might be for personalized persuasion. So until we know more, we don't allow people to build applications for political campaigning and lobbying. Meta and Google also announced plans in late 2023 that were centered around elections. Meta says it is continuing what it sees and it claims are robust efforts to prevent misinformation and influence campaigns that are from, say, foreign governments or bad actors designed to sway elections. It's also added some new AI-focused measures to the mix. In certain cases, advertisers will have to disclose now if they have used AI to create a political ad. On Google's end, the search giant plans to restrict certain election-related questions in its generative AI search responses and in BARD. Advertisers are now required to disclose when they contain in their ads realistic synthetic content that's been digitally altered or generated, and YouTube creators will soon need to acknowledge this as well. So, Paul, what problems are you most worried about during, uh, you know, obviously elections in the U.S. are the most relevant ones to us, but just in general worldwide elections uh, in this kind of age of AI? And do you find that these measures go far enough to combat them? I, I'm glad that they're focused on it and working on it. I mean, I'm sure they're putting a lot of resources behind it. That is good. As we've talked about on the show before, I, I don't, I don't think it's going to matter that much. Like just this morning I saw, um, there was a deep fake robo call from Joe Biden calling mm -hmm. Democrats in New Hampshire, telling them not to go out and vote on Tuesday because they're only going to help Trump get into office if they use their vote on Tuesday, implying to people who maybe don't understand, you get to a vote in the both elections. That It's not just the um, Tuesday, but general election as well. So I, I just think that the amount of synthetic content that's going to be created and weaponized is just going to be too much to contain. Mm. And I, I think that education to citizens about what AI is capable of and the need to like I, I don't know if it's a fool's errand to pursue, but like not believe what you see online or what you hear. I have this conversation with my kids all the time, like verified sources. Like if you see or hear anything online, it has to be a verified source. If it's an influencer who you believe, make sure it's coming from their channel that not like reshared or coming from somewhere else where it could be deep faked. And so I have this conversation daily with my 10 year old, and my 12 year old about how to trust, how to find trusted and verified sources. I don't think we can that quickly educate society. I'm not sure that a lot of society wants verified and trusted sources. I think they, they just want to share what they see and the crazier it is, the more likely they are to share it. So I don't know. I, I, I really want to be like optimistic about, um, about this in terms of the election. And I, I, I really struggle to find a positive angle to any of this, to be honest with you. 
I hear you. you say, otherwise, I'll just cry if I think about this. Uh, so in some other news, OpenAI has said, quote, it would be impossible to train AI models without using copyrighted material. Now, this comes from a statement the company submitted to the United Kingdom's House of Lords as part of an inquiry being undertaken by that body. And in it, OpenAI comes out and says, quote, because copyright today covers virtually every sort of human expression, including blog posts, photographs, forum posts, scraps of software code, and government documents, it would be impossible to train today's leading AI models without using copyrighted materials. The company also said that it can't just train AI models on public domain books and drawings. They're just too old and limited to, quote, meet the needs of today's citizens. Paul, what did you make of this argument? It seems like OpenAI is kind of increasingly relying on this idea that public material is both necessary and, quote, fair use to include in AI training. Yeah, I know we talked a little bit about this on the previous episode, you know, the New York Times lawsuit of OpenAI. Um, I don't know. I mean, I feel like this is at some point just going to snowball out of control to mm -hmm. where no matter what they do from a legal perspective, again, like the open source models are out there trained on all the same stuff. Like, how do you shut them all down? Like maybe, I don't know, maybe there are some legal maneuvers I'm not aware of or some technical maneuvers I'm not aware of that once this stuff is permeated throughout online and throughout society, like how do you take it all back and stop it? I get that it might stop open AI from like legally training future models. Yeah. But I also feel like that'd be part of their legal argument. It's like, stop us. Like it's not going to stop all of them. Like there's these models are everywhere. So I don't know. I mean, it's again, a topic we're going to kind of keep pursuing and we may do some more deep dives. Um, for the AI for Writers Summit, we've got actually an entire session uh, with a lawyer, IP lawyer on this topic, like copyrights and everything. So it's definitely an area I'm really intrigued by. Um, but OpenAI obviously has a lot on the line to convince the governments of this. So Samsung has signaled in the strongest way possible that it is all in on AI-powered smartphones. At its Samsung Unpacked event last week, they unveiled a new their new Galaxy phones, and all of these phones are infused with AI. Now, this is largely thanks to Galaxy AI, which is Samsung's on-device and cloud-based AI models. Galaxy AI is embedded in every one of its new Galaxy S24 phones. And it gives users a host of generative AI capabilities that are actually powered by Google's Gemini models. So some of the initial AI features they've demoed on these phones include something called like circle to search capabilities, where you circle parts of text, videos, and photos to get instant search results. You can use AI to give you live translations when you're on a phone call, which is pretty cool. There are voice transcription and summarization capabilities generative AI image and photo editing, and generative AI chat features that help you write messages uh, back to people when you're communicating. So, Paul, this kind of ran under a headline in The Verge called the AI phones are coming. What do we mean when we say AI phones? Like, how are these fundamentally different from the smartphones we know and love? I mean, I think they probably should just put the generative AI phones are coming. I don't know. I mean, we've had AI in our phones for a decade yeah, uh, or more. Right. 
So it's not like the iPhone doesn't have, or the Pixel doesn't have AI in it, but it just seems like they're just deeply infusing all aspects of generative AI into the phone, which they're all going to do. But I knew, so I had actually flagged this one at some point last week. And then uh, Sunday night, I get a text from my dad saying, do you see that that uh, Galaxy AI ad for the Samsung phones? And I happened to miss it. I was We were watching the football game, and that's, I guess, what was on the Bills uh, Chiefs game. And so it happened twice, so I, I missed it both times. And he's like, you got to look it up. So I, I have not seen it yet, Dad. But I, I, Mike and I both looked. We were trying to find the ad online. I couldn't find it. Uh, no, I think this is, and this is part of my challenge with this whole wearables category, which we'll dive back into another time. The phones are going to become so smart, and it's the thing we're already used to mm-hmm. that that's why I just don't think I'm going to need a rabbit device and a pin on my shirt and a pendant from my neck and glad like the phones are going to be the thing. They're already the thing that hundreds of millions or a billion plus people use every day. So this is absolutely going to be a 2024 thing. Your phones are going to become an infinitely smarter. I think it's gonna be a really cool application of it. So last but not least, Elon Musk is back in the news. Uh, or did he ever leave? Musk posted on X that he feels uncomfortable growing Tesla into an AI and robotics leader without being awarded 12% more of the company, which would give him about 25% ownership in Tesla. He said if this doesn't happen, he'd prefer to build AI products outside of Tesla. Now, a portion of his statement that he put on X gives us a little context into why he claims this is important. He says, quote, I am uncomfortable growing Tesla to be a leader in AI and robotics without having around 25% voting control, enough to be influential, but not so much that I can't be overturned. Unless that is the case, I would prefer to build products outside of Tesla. You don't seem to understand that Tesla is not one startup, but a dozen. Simply look at the delta between what Tesla does and GM. So, Paul, you're a longtime watcher of Elon Musk and his companies. Like, what's going on here? Why is it so important to control Tesla more as the company develops powerful AI? You gotta love how Elon Musk uses Twitter because that that tweet was in a reply to some dude with 11,000 followers yeah. calling him out <laughs> as like, he already owns 411 million shares. Like, what else does he need? And that's when he, you know, so he responds to this random dude um, with this explanation of like, I, I want another quarter of the company, basically. Um, yeah, I, I, I mean, I get what he's saying. Like, he's looking out ahead and saying, okay, if if I put Optimus into this business and all these other AI things we're building, and I let that live underneath the Tesla domain, and all the shareholders get pieces of that and they become as powerful as I think they're going to be I don't want to be at the mercy of shareholders to mm. to dictate or at least not as much as I am currently with roughly 13% ownership of the company that he has um so uh it, it's a significant jump though i mean to go from uh 13% ownership to 25% ownership is a massive leap I understand why he's saying it. I don't know what's motivating it at the moment. I don't know like why all of a sudden this is like a topic. Usually there's some other thing brewing in the background where he tweets things like this. Um, I don't know. It'd be really interesting. It's a, it would be a crazy thing to see, but he does get into like, there's some compensation plan case going on in Delaware that 
went to trial was held in 2022. There was no verdict yet or something. So it's like, this isn't something that's going to come to a head in the next couple of weeks, but it is interesting that someone's of his stature is basically saying online, like, give me another however many billions of dollars worth of stock, or I'm not, I'm going to take my companies out of here and the value of them. I, I sold some Tesla shares that day. I'll tell you that. Like, <laughs> yeah. There's not really something you want to see as a shareholder of Tesla that like the CEO is threatening to extract massive future value from the company. That's a little yeah. unsettling. As much as I love my Tesla and you know the company itself makes great products, that that that's weird to see. I can't think of another company where that would be okay for the CEO to to do something like that. All right. Well, that's a wrap for this week. Um, I would encourage everyone to also check out Marketing AI Institute's newsletter. Our newsletter called This Week in AI covers a ton of different topics that we didn't get to cover on the podcast today. You'll get an in-depth breakdown of some of our main topics, as well as all the other news that we just couldn't fit into this episode. So it's one of the best ways out there to quickly stay up to date on super relevant, super actionable AI news. And you can get that at marketingaiinstitute.com forward slash newsletter. I also, in honor of Paul traveling, want to mention that uh, if you are looking for a dynamic uh, speaker on issues in AI and business, both Paul and myself, do dozens of talks every single year uh, to help marketers, executives, and entrepreneurs understand the opportunities and obstacles that AI presents to their businesses. So if you're interested in bringing one of us in to educate your organization at your next conference, corporate event, uh, team meeting, just go to marketingaiinstitute.com, click about and click speaking to learn a little more about kinds of talks we give and get in touch. Paul. Thanks again for breaking down a demystifying world of AI this week. We really appreciate it. Yeah, appreciate you putting everything together. And I will hopefully see you in the office on Wednesday. Sounds good. <laughs> All right. Talk to you soon. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Marketing AI Show. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you're ready to continue your learning, head over to marketingaiinstitute.com. Be sure to subscribe to our weekly newsletter, check out our free monthly webinars, and explore dozens of online courses and professional certifications. Until next time, stay curious and explore AI.